Broadcasting live on this uh, beautifully snowy day in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. And we're going to talk a bit of culture this morning as well. We're also going to talk, alas, about the uh, Super Bowl. Did not quite go my way. And we're going to talk about how some conservative Christians are are feeling some uh, love toward uh, dreamers. This is good. We're also going to talk about the uh, Mighty Earth Campaign versus the Mighty Tyson Corporation. We'll talk about how the uh, Global Warming Accord reached in Paris. Well, you know, climate change is kind of kissing that goodbye prematurely. And we'll talk about how no one president can really fix America's deep uh, really, really deep, let's call it really, really deep dysfun- dysfunction. We'll talk about all these things on today's Fallon Forum. All right, again, uh, thanks for joining us on the program today. And we have some uh, great technological uh, advancements over the week, uh, thanks to the excellent staff here at La Reina. We now have the capacity to take your phone calls. So if you want to join the conversation at any point, give us a shout at 515-528-8122. That's 528-8122. Okay, I want to welcome to the studio David Van Cleve. Uh, he's uh, involved with a local production here called I Never Saw Another Butterfly, which is a performance that has achieved um, recognition and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, broadcast uh, all over the country and I think has a pretty powerful message. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, in a nutshell, I Never Saw Another Butterfly. I, I know it's a really... Tough conversation, but let's start off with just giving us uh, the synopsis yeah, about what's absolutely. going on. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just jump in. Um, so, I Never Saw Another Butterfly is a play um, based on a book, and the book is a collection of artwork and poetry that was collected um, after the liberation of Terezin, the concentration camp ghetto, during the World War. Um, during World War II, yeah. Yeah, there was a, okay. a teacher there, an art teacher, who taught her children the power of the arts and encouraged them to paint to give them some sort of balance and some sort of hope for for survival and for freedom. After the liberation, one of those students returned, uncovered over 4,500 paintings, um, and this story is, is a collection of, of that artwork. Yeah. And, it, you know, it seems uh, there have been, I don't know how many plays, movies, books, uh, works of art, uh, you know, monuments made in response to the horrible atrocities of World War II and the concentration camps, and it just seems like it's a message we never get tired of hearing as bad as as much as we want to avoid hearing and i think something inside tells us that we have to hear this we we, this is a message we need to be continually reminded about absolutely and and what's interesting with this production is we feature a lot of students um we encourage people to bring their students to the performance it's a great introduction um this particular version focuses on the hope um that even in the darkest of circumstances we can find hope if we if we bond together as a community and we, yeah. we focus so say, together. Say, I'm, I'm, say a little bit more about that because that's sometimes that's a hard thing to capture. It is. When you're in a concentration camp. Absolutely. How do you, and how do you capture that uh, I mean as you're, as you're in the experience and then convey that in a way that instills hope in people today? Well you know it's, I've been doing so much research on this and, and Terezin was a very different concentration camp than what we're used to hearing about. Really? Um, it's what the Nazis used as their model camp. It's what they used to prove to the world that they didn't hate the Jews. So not only did they was allow... Was a kinder and gentler concentration camp? Um, <laughs> you know, in many ways, it wasn't even a concentration camp. It was technically just a ghetto. Um, but it's where they sent the Remind musicians. me what town, what city was that in? It was in Prague. Prague, okay. Um, Slovakia. Yep. And um, 
it's where they sent a lot of the musicians and scholars and artists. And uh, there was an opera that premiered in Terzian, performed over 55 times. Uh, while while the concentration camp was yep. open? Yeah, absolutely. It was, a, it was an artist, a composer, who was transported there um, as he was writing it. He was workshopping it with the orphanage in Prague, sent to the camp. Within a year, all of the students he was working with were also sent to the camp. So they just picked up where they left off. They had performance, sold out performances. They so even made tickets. Did Terezine have gas chambers? Um, not until the very, very end. So it's where they sent, it was the last camp liberated, um, and yeah. it's where they sent, um, when they realized that Auschwitz was about to be liberated. When the, when the Germans realized. Yep. They, they transported basically everyone they could uh, to Terezine, and that's when they were building the gas chambers. So they, they, come, they, they cranked up the, uh, the intensity of that at the very end. Absolutely. Yeah, wow. I, I, gosh, I, that's a, that's a remind that's a reminder of just how horrific well, that whole regime was. It's uh, it is horrific, and it's been a process to to work on this, especially with children. Um, but we've we've used the opportunity to highlight the kindness and the um, positivity that we see in the world as a way to kind of mm-hmm. get through, mm-hmm. and use that as a reminder on why we can't let this happen again. Right, and I know I know in Germany, I've, I have lots of German friends, and I know in Germany, uh, these reminders are constant, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's one reason why we've seen. Germany rise to such um, economic and political prominence without the, uh, the shall I call it, baggage mm-hmm. of uh, previous, uh, previous generations of, of, of leaders. Uh, and and I, I think it's important for us to, you know, again, continue to remember that, um, you know, these things have happened not that long ago, and they could happen again. And yet, again, yet, like you said, even in the darkest hour, we still have every reason to retain hope and, uh, you know, to continue to believe in what's good in humanity. Absolutely. It is. In, in fact, my favorite part of the whole show is a stage direction. It's not even spoken. Um, and it's a stage direction about the teacher. And it says she cares about their survival and the survival in them of what is good. Mm. And that, to me, is a message that we absolutely need to be sharing every chance we get, especially with children. Yeah. And when did this play first begin to premiere? Um, so it premiered in the, in the 60s. Um, that long ago. Wow. Yeah, it was a Catholic okay. nun found this book. Oh, really? Um, okay. And so it, it's, that's really interesting to me that it's very much a Jewish play, but written by... Yeah, by none. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, is this the first time it's been performed in Des Moines? Um, to my knowledge, a lot of schools and community groups will do it. It's, mm-hmm. it's designed to be very minimalistically done. Um, but it's the first time a, a recognized theater company has done it. And so and the, the toughest question of all, perhaps, uh, uh, when, 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 when Donald Trump was campaigning for president and then after he was elected president and even still, there are frequent references to – fascism because a lot of his behavior some people see that as being very similar to the traits you see in fascists historically Mm -hmm. and so do you think because of that this play has a particularly important message because of the risk that you know maybe at least in, in a lot of people's minds the risk that america could fall into fascism do you think there's any particularly particularly uh, you know important and timely message because of that reality? Absolutely. Well, it definitely influenced our decision to produce the show. Aha, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, well that, that 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 answers that question. But tell me a little bit more about that. Why why what what do you, do you do you think that's a genuine concern? Are people over overreacting? Are they exaggerating the risk of fascism under a president who again is um, doing things that are unique whether you're Republican or Democrat? There's never been nothing like what we've seen right no, now. Well, that's for sure. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, I see in our country more, uh, more of us othering each other and making uh, rash judgments and discriminations based on, on certain characteristics um, than I've ever seen in the past um, in my life. And so that is causing – that's reason to be alarmed. So do you, do you, think, do you think people are judging Trump rashly? 
or is oh. that is that is, that, is, is, is that criticism legitimate? Oh, that's absolutely legitimate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but your your concern is with the judgment that may come from Trump toward uh, different groups that he's targeted with tweets, or well, or and, and who knows he's giving what. permission for for more action. I mean, there are more. Um, white supremacist violent acts last year than than any time in recent history and that's, that's not documented. a coincidence yeah yeah so yeah again so i see you're saying i see your i see what you're saying about this uh, being timely uh i'm not surprised and i guess pleased to know that it was intentional uh, <laughs> i think it's always good when when artists whether they're whatever venue you're in and theater in particular perhaps uh, you know select what you're um what you're going to work on based on what the you know the climate is at the time what what's uh What's moving and shaking in people's lives, and and what uh, what has the most um, you know what, what has the best opportunity of influencing us in a positive way? Absolutely. Well, I think it's our responsibility as artists to do so. So anyway, the uh, in Des Moines again, folks. If you're listening elsewhere around the country, uh, check out the um, the um, check out your local theater or maybe uh, somewhere else in your you know nearby. For I never saw another butterfly. Uh, check it out. It's um it's been it's been um been playing pretty much steadily, I think, since the 1960s, and has a message that is still very relevant and important. In Des Moines, it will be performing... Uh, February uh, 9th to the 18th, so open this Friday uh, for two weekends down at the Stoner Theater inside the Civic Center. February 9th through the 18th at the uh, Stoner Theater in uh, downtown Des Moines. Very good. We've been talking with uh, David Van Cleve. Uh, he's uh, you're, And your role in the production? Um, I am the director and scenic designer. S- director and scenic designer. What, two hats? And it's my first time designing a set, so that's been fun. <laughs> wow, okay. Well, hey, when we come back, folks, um, okay, we're going to switch gears to maybe something less important, but also a little bit interesting, the Super Bowl. And, yeah, I, I always like to talk about the bigger issues involving football, but we're going to talk a little bit about the game itself. Thanks to the folks here at Lorraine at 1260 AM and 96.5 FM, our home station. And thanks to the other stations around the state and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can always find podcasts of the Fallon Forum on the uh, Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. And later in the program, we'll be talking about how dreamers have found an unexpected ally in conservative Christians. We'll also discuss the uh, Mighty Earth campaign versus Tyson. And we'll talk about how global warming has basically just kissed the Paris Accord goodbye. And if time allows, we'll talk about how concerns that, you know, if people think one president can make a difference, sometimes he can or she can. But, you know, our, our dysfunction is deep enough where we can't just rely on one guy or gal to uh, expect the, expect that to make the change we need. Okay, so, um, yeah, but right now, uh, i got to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl. And, okay, so, yeah, I made ten predictions um, about a month ago uh, at the very first part of the year, and two of them were that uh, spring would start early this year. So I, I was wrong on that. The other was that uh, the Patriots would win the Super Bowl. So I'm going 0 for 2 right now. Uh, but as bad as I feel about that, I probably don't feel quite as bad as Tom Brady. But, um... <laughs> You know, it was, um, come on, it was a good game. It, 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 was, it was supposed to be a high-scoring game. It was. Uh, it, uh, you know, it, it, the Foles played, the, the Eagles quarterback was amazing. You know, there's, there's no, and I thought the most, um, <laughs> if, if he has any reason to gloat at all, it has to be on the fact that, that the Eagles did the same a incredibly unusual fancy play that the Patriots tried and failed at where you had the reverse and then the pass to the quarterback, Brady running out to receive a pass and dropping it. 
Foles doing the exact same thing, only catching the pass for a touchdown. That that was amazing. That was just from a from a purely strategic point of view. That was an incredible play. But you know, my sense is, despite the Patriots losing this uh, this game, they still remain the the best team in football. Probably the best team in football history. Although you know that that could have been sealed beyond a shadow of a doubt. I think yesterday, but you know, I still th- say it's probably the case. And it's um. You know, and I say this as somebody who's not, I, I'm actually not a huge football fan. In terms of sports, uh, there are sports I admire much more out there than football. But, um, you know, you take what you can get, and uh, <laughs> uh, this is a big event, a big day. And, of course, my, um, my uh, main involvement with the Super Bowl was to go to Minneapolis with a group of people on Saturday. Let's call it Super Saturday. And to... Um, to put pressure on U.S. Bank, because, again, they're playing in U.S. Bank Stadium, to put pressure on U.S. Bank to divest from fossil fuels. Now, what I saw there, just from a, strictly from a cultural uh, point of view, was incredible. Uh, I've never been to a Super Bowl. I've never been anywhere near a site where a Super Bowl is about to be held, and that may never happen again. But uh, it, it, was, it was incredible. Uh, the entire... Uh, Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis for block after block was closed to everything but pedestrian traffic. And the pedestrian traffic was thick. It was just crawling with people. And it was cold and it was snowing. And yet there were throngs of people out there. Now, interestingly, I, I only ran into one other, maybe actually I think eventually two of the other Patriots fans. And I had my picture taken with one just to prove that there were Patriots fans at the at the uh, at the Super Bowl um, the, the the day before the event, mostly I saw Green Bay Packer fans, of course, who who love this weather, thrive on it. Probably probably get uh, get upset when it gets above when the temperature gets above fifty degrees. But yeah, the place is crawling with Packers fans for some reason. But um, you know, lots of things going on. Uh, snowmobile competitions uh, down there was a there was a cross country skiing slope there. Uh, um, music, uh, just a real festive event. And I get why people just want to go and have fun with that. But I think it's really important that there were organizations that brought messages to the Super Bowl because, again, America's attention is riveted on this moment. And a lot of us feel there are important issues and problems that America's attention needs to be riveted on as well. Again, not to detract from the sheer joy and fun and entertainment value of something as amazing as this annual football tradition. But, um, you know, what's been happening with the expansion of fossil fuel projects is unconscionable. And there are financial institutions that make that possible. U.S. Bank is one of them. Wells Fargo is another. You know, these financial institutions don't have to do that. And what was troubling about U.S. Bank is they said they weren't going to do it. And then they found a way to do it while still being able to say they weren't doing it. That's a more complicated conversation than we can have today, and we will have that at some point. I just want to say I want to, I want to talk, also talk about uh, racial inequality and how that played out in the Super Bowl. But the, um, you know, re- regarding the U.S. Bank and the pressure on them to divest from financing pipelines, about 300 people showed up. And it was, um, you know, the, 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 it was really high security. But I will say this: the, the, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened behind closed doors. But you have, you have the National Guard, of course, poised to, um, you know, be involved if need be. Um, my impression was that Minneapolis really preferred to have their own law enforcement run lead on this, and they did. 
I don't remember seeing any National Guard troops. I saw lots of Minneapolis Police Department uh, law enforcement officers, and um, they were keeping close track of us. (laughs) Uh, While we were rallying in front of the U.S. Bank building for about an hour uh, with speeches and banners, and, yeah, we we weren't blocking pedestrian traffic. People were still able to get through. We made it a little bit you know, difficult for them to do that, not intentionally just by the sheer fact that we were there, but we were respectful. For the most part, they were respectful. Some actually were very supportive and and cheered along with us and stopped and gave favorable comments. Of course, there were the derogatory comments like, go back to where you came from, uh, which was funny because most people there were from Minnesota or from even from Minneapolis, uh, you know, and then a few other derogatory comments, but not that much. Um, and, uh, I was I was surprised actually that U.S. Bank officials, the Guard, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department, um, the Super Bowl officials themselves, that their strategy was entirely hands off. I mean, we were loud, we were very visible, we had large banners, <laughs> a megaphone, uh, and yet um, there was nothing done to um, prevent us from exercising our First Amendment rights in front of the U.S. Bank, and. That should be normal. That should be the, 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 the standard. But anymore, it's not. Anymore, uh, there are, uh, there, it's very frequent that you see this very quick and effective uh, and strong counterpunch by authorities against that kind of thing. And, uh, of course, now, right now, right now, the battle against the First Amendment seems to be focused on legislatures around the country. And we'll, we can talk, we'll talk about that in, uh, in future segments of this program. But the... Um, the uh, it was a very fluid event. The plan originally had been to go down to the um, snow, snowmobile uh, um, derby, whatever it was called. That didn't happen. The um, we all kind of congregated in a, in a central point in Nicolet Mall. Again, there was room for people to walk around us, but we occupied that space to um, get the message out about um, about how we felt about U.S. Bank and about climate change and about. How, uh, how what they've done to indigenous communities is particularly unconscionable. One of the speakers, Christine Nobis, mentioned how man camps tend to form around these uh, fossil fuel projects and how, well, any, any woman being, um, being uh, you know, taken into a man camp and, and uh, abused or sold or, you know, all the different t- terrible things that happen, it, the, the, the largest concentration of, uh, of abuse is among in, indigenous peoples. Um, the rate of uh, murdered and missing indigenous women and, and others as well is about six times what it is in the population at large. And so all these concerns came out in this event, uh, uh, concerns about property rights and farmers and their, their land being taken against their will and their land, their soil being destroyed. Uh, but again, a lot of the focus on native communities and the issues they've had uh, with pipelines. Uh, and with the whole fossil fuel extraction industry. Overall, a good event. And in the very end, uh, we just kind of took over a street and walked, uh, walked away from the, uh, the Super Bowl party. Uh, and they let us do that. Uh, so, you know, from law enforcement's point of view, that was a very um, tolerable, a tolerant way to handle it. It was also probably strategically a very intelligent way to handle it. And from our point of view, it, it made for a more peaceful and I think um, uh, effective event. The one other thing that happened, uh, now I don't know of any, I've not yet heard of any, um, any, any climate or, or pipeline-based actions that occurred during the Super Bowl. I know that, um, again, last year there was the incident where 
to uh, Grappellers, is that the right word? Dropped a huge uh, divest and dapple banner from uh, from the, uh, the the ceiling, uh, whatever you call the beams that are up there in the ceiling. Uh, and that was in, that was kind of incredible and got a lot of attention. As far as I know, nothing like that happened inside the stadium. But what happened on the way to the stadium was uh, allegedly Minneapolis uh, actually closed down some of the subway, uh, some of the uh, underground uh, transit tra- the trains. And uh, I, I didn't realize they were underground. Maybe they aren't. But they, the the train the the commuter trains were reserved strictly for people going to the Super Bowl. And so. Um, Black Lives Matter and other groups that oppose racial inequality uh, actually blocked the tracks and prevented people from getting to the stadium. I don't know. I don't. I, I. I know that was happening. I don't know how it all played out, but that was pretty bold. And again, that's been a pretty important conversation in the NFL, as many players, of course, have uh, knelt during the na- national anthem to oppose racial uh, racial profiling, attacks on. Uh, you know, uh, on, on on the uh, African American community uh, here in Des Moines, our most recent transgression was uh, um, a black man at uh, Old Navy was um, accused of um, of shoplifting. He was wearing a hat that he brought into the store with him. Uh, that actually, that story has gone viral, and um, again, a, a black guy on us. But to, no, to Old Navy's credit, they fired those employees. Um, but you know this isn't this is not an issue that's going away, and so I'm glad. I, I personally, I'm glad that people have been uh, you know courageous enough to raise that during football games. It didn't happen on the field yesterday. It did happen for some people on the way to the game uh, when these trains were being blocked. So I, again, I don't know how that all played out. I've it, it's hard to keep up with all this stuff, but um, I'm looking forward to seeing any uh, any kind of a closure on 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 what happened with that. Uh, what kind of responses um, uh, were, there were, and whether whether there's any sense that um, that some people started getting the message that yeah, this is an issue that's not going to go away, uh, just like the issue of uh, of climate change and the expansion of pipelines is not going going to go away, and neither is the um, the the growing prominence and vocal um, and, and vocal uh, participation of the Native American communities that again are probably a- adversely affected. By, uh, by fossil fuel expansion projects. Okay, so um, we're going to take a short break here, folks. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about how dreamers are finding an unlikely ally in conservative Christians. Easy. That's my style. Howdy do me. Just watch me smile. Fare thee well me. I got a And any place I hang my hat is home Sweetening water Cherry wine Thank you kindly Suits me just fine Kansas City, Caroline, that's my honeycomb. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, and a reminder, if you'd like to join the conversation, we have 
We have technologically advanced so far that we can now take your calls without any fear of uh, getting in trouble with the FCC. So give us a shout if you'd like at 515-528-8122. That's 528-8122. All right, so welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Later in the program, Laura Ferracci and Jesse uh, Waxman are going to join us to talk about the Mighty Earth campaign targeted on the very mighty Tyson Corporation. Uh, we'll also talk about how, unfortunately, global warming seems to have kissed the Paris Accord goodbye. But first, I want to talk about dreamers a bit. That's right, the, uh, the group of immigrants that, um, that have been so central to such political, so many political controversy right now. You know, they, um, I, you know I, a lot of folks think that, well, Democrats support them, Republicans oppose them. You know... You know, conservatives oppose them, liberals liberals support them, but it's not it's it's not quite that simple. Fortunately, there's there's some good stuff happening, because I, and I've always thought this. I've always been really surprised when Christian conservatives bash immigrants, because the Bible is so clear about this. I, I mean, the, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and they became exiles. They were exiled for 40 years, crossing the Red Sea into the desert. Um, you know, and, and there, and this, and the Scripture, the Old Testament, is full of references to the importance of being kind to strangers, strangers, of, of bringing them in, of um, remembering that you know you were once an alien in another land. And so, you know, it's hard. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that I think people refer to in the Bible that's really not there, but that's really there, and it's there in a solid. And repeated way, and so you've got folks in the Christian conservative community that understand that, and you have um, people who have been working hard to get them to understand that. Uh, you know, folks who um, are members of those churches uh, and uh, members of the immigrant community who um, who are very strong Christians, and uh, it's been it's been having some success. So you've got this again a fairly significant block within the uh, within the Republican Party. I mean, by some estimates, by some analysis, evangelical Christians make up about 25% of the, of the American electorate. Uh, you know, they're a huge and very powerful and very vocal block of voters, especially within the Republican Party, which, again, now pretty much controls everything. So um, to have that block, or at least a big chunk of that block, beginning to speak out in fa favorably about the importance of respecting this element of the immigrant community is really helpful. And um, May, in the end, it's hard to say how this is going to play out. February 8th is a big day because, of course, that's the, that's the day that, um, that uh, Mitch McConnell promised uh, Chuck Schumer uh, that, um, that we have, um, we'd have a, a conversation. Uh, we'd, we'd bring up the conversation about uh, what to do about uh, our immigrant community as we um, also begin the next round of conversations about how to fund government. Uh, that that's we'll have that's a separate conversation, of course. But the fact that um, it's going to come up is important, and the fact that we've got um, we've, we've got a significant chunk of the GOP base that understands that dreamers need to be treated right. That they it, it doesn't make sense to send these these folks back to quote their home countries, countries they've never known. Uh, you know where a language they don't speak is 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 the dominant language. Uh, you know. Not only is Scripture on the side of the dreamers in this case, but so is logic. Now, again, I know, I know Scripture often 
plays a more important role in certain elements of the political universe than logic. But in this case, both are together. And, and again, hopefully, hopefully the, uh, the groundwork that's been done over the years to get folks in, in the evangelical Christian you know, churches to understand why they should have concern about immigrants, that's, that's, um, it takes time to lay that groundwork, to build those relationships, to, to kind of change the perspective. But I think it, you know, it's been happening for a long time. And it may now be coming to a point where we're going to see the fruition of all that effort. So, yeah, there's one, uh, one, uh, one fellow, I don't know much about him, but again, a man named Ali Norani who started a campaign, uh, this is from an article in USA Today, started a campaign a few years ago to recruit business leaders, police chiefs, and pastors from conservative parts of the country to convince their elected leaders to support new immigration policies. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's been receiving, um, receiving uh, you know, well-received. Now, a word of caution here, just because evangelical Christians are embracing the dreamers who, again, they know and see and who live in their communities and often go to their churches, doesn't mean they're on board with a broader, you know, a broader approach to immigration reform that hopefully, that ideally wouldn't include building a wall. Some of them also support that. So we'll see where that goes, but... Some limited optimism about what might happen on February 8th regarding Dreamers. We'll see. Uh, this is a conversation that's going to keep moving forward. Again, so, um, yeah, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. We're broadcasting from Des Moines on this snowy day. Uh, later in the program, we'll talk about how global warming has basically kissed the Paris Accord goodbye. And we'll talk also about, uh, oh, some concerns about President Trump. Yeah, surprise, surprise. That never enters into these conversations. But first, I want to welcome uh, Jesse Waxman to the program. Uh, she's with the Mighty Earth Campaign. And yes. this is focused on Tyson Corporation. Big, big Tyson Corporation. This is a. This sounds like a, 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 a David versus Goliath campaign. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Ed. Um, <laughs> this is definitely one of those David versus Goliath campaigns. Um, we are organizing around the country on grassroots efforts and also in shareholder resolutions to get the uh, biggest meat producer in the country, Tyson Foods, to commit to buying animal feed grown using sustainable practices as a way to cut down the water pollution um, and really the carbon emissions as well that we're seeing um, right. from the agricultural sector here in the U.S. And Tyson is the biggest. They are by far the biggest. By far the biggest, yeah. yeah. They control about a fifth of the entire meat production industry in the U.S., um, which is... Well, well beyond um, wow. what any other company controls. Right. Okay. And so, uh, how do you? How do you? How does this work? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Yeah. Um, so Tyson's CEO Tom Hayes, uh, who came in about a year and a half ago, uh, decided that one of the things that he wanted to do with the company was to take it in a new direction and have them be more sustainable, which is great as long as they're walking the walk as well. So we're really putting the pressure on demonstrating to Tyson that as the industry leader um, and as the biggest meat producer in the industry, they have a responsibility not only to follow up on that um, commitment from their CEO, but generally to be good stewards of the communities in which they operate. Um, so we're really looking at the water contamination. Um, so water pollution from the agricultural industry leads to a lot of runoff, causes dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, um, and more locally, leads to um, water contamination in our drinking water that has right. carcinogenic compounds. It's a really big problem. Um, so to your point of what we're doing, um, 
we're kind of organizing on a variety of fronts. Uh, this Thursday, Mighty Earth, uh, the Tri-State Coalition for Responsible Investing, I believe they're called. And which uh, which three groups. states? You know, that's a great question. <laughs> I have not looked into that one. But three states somewhere. Three states somewhere. Uh, Hawaii, Alaska, and Florida. No. Why not? Yeah, no. Um, they're bringing forward a uh, shareholder resolution at Tyson's uh, annual shareholder meeting this Thursday. Um, asking. So, so this Thursday is Tyson's annual shareholder meeting. Yes. Okay, so um, if, you, if you're listening to the show and you've got, you've got stock in Tyson... Yeah, call in to their sustainability office, leave a message saying that you want them to um, adopt this resolution. And um, what does the resolution state? Yeah, so the resolution is asking Tyson to adopt a uh, water stewardship policy, so to reduce the risks of water contamination at their facilities, both that they own directly, that they contract to, and from their suppliers. And how, how would they do that? Um, what would they do specifically? So this would be setting a time-bound goal to either um, – implement certain practices in their facilities or um, throughout their supply chain. Like what kind of practices? Yeah. So Mighty Earth is focused a lot on the uh, supply chain side of things, looking at the grain production, because in the meat industry, the bulk of water pollution is coming from the way we grow the corn and soy to feed livestock. So we're looking for Tysa to um, buy from suppliers who use practices like cover crops, buffer zones, not applying more fertilizer than um, is needed so by some, their some would say that the bulk of uh, contamination in agriculture is from confinements. There's definitely uh, a good deal of pollution coming from animal confinements. Um, when you look at the um, scale of agriculture needed to feed those livestock, the amount of runoff coming from those fields is... Um, is a larger contributor both from the uh, soil loss from intensive agricultural practices um, and the lack of cover crops, really, um, the over-application of fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times manure from um, these animal confinements are spread onto these grain fields as a default for mm -hmm. um, just disposal because there's not right. – a better practice for them. So a lot of that is really coming off the fields where we're growing the corn. So the goal way. is to get Tyson to agree to source its grain from uh, farmers who are growing it more uh, sustainably, I guess more is the word. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Where, where they're, uh, they're using less chemicals uh, and they may be using buffer strips, uh, mm -hmm. um, grass waterways, uh, terracing, and cover crops. Exactly. Yeah. That's a very, very small percentage of the uh, <laughs> the uh, grain being grown in the upper Midwest. So how do you how do you do that? How do you? It sounds like the shift has to occur at the uh, you know farm by farm level. Yeah. So the idea is Tyson, by virtue of the fact of they control, like I said, about a fifth of the meat industry. Um, you know, on a weekly basis, they're slaughtering over thirty nine million animals. Um, so they they have a lot of animals that they're responsible 39 for. Thirty nine million nationwide. Yeah, oh, okay. every every week. Every week, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of animals that need to be fed on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. um, they're buying a lot of grain in order to feed those animals. The idea is if you can get Tyson, if we can get Tyson to make this commitment, there will suddenly be a huge demand for more sustainable practices. Sure, I mean we've seen that happen elsewhere too with uh, with large restaurant chains and others that have said, well, we're gonna we're only gonna serve um, free range or not free range, uh, cage free chickens or. Right. Eggs. You know, you, then you then you suddenly, yeah, suddenly the the supply chain responds to that exactly. But it's tough. You know, it's not always easy. 
no, it's not always easy, and those things take time. We're not looking. We're looking for Tyson to set a uh, time-bound commitment, so you know, not tomorrow, but to phase this in right. in a couple of years. But we've seen that um, other large corporations like Smithfield Foods, which um, controls a significant portion of the pork industry, yeah. um, in their 2016 sustainability report, they said that by this year, 75% of the grain they purchase would be grown using these kinds of practices. Oh, really? Um, so that's so they, in a fairly on, are, short turnaround. Are they on track to accomplish that? That's a, that's a two-year goal. That's amazing. Yeah, to my awareness, they are. Yeah, Smithfield, you know, in terms of um, folks who have been uh, have concerns about hog confinements, uh, and again, most hog confinements aren't owned by, uh, you know, your average farmer. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes that farmer is... Uh, is uh, he was working on contract with uh, Smith, Smith, uh, Smithfield or some of the other big mm-hmm. corporations. But um, that's, that, that's kind of surprising to me, actually, but, but encouraging. But I don't know how they can accomplish that so quickly, but um, it's good that they are. Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of the practices that we're looking at are um, they're really low-tech solutions, right? Like planting cover crops. Mm-hmm. That um, is a very low-tech solution. Right. But Buffer zones are, you know— Leaving but there's small a cost to it, you know? There's, there's a cost to it. Yeah, you know? there, there certainly is. Um, yeah. One of the things that we're looking for Tyson to adopt as part of this uh, policy that we're pushing for is um, that they should buy third rotation grains as part of their feed mix. So mm. right now, the bulk of their... What's a third rotation grain? Yeah, so right now, um, farmers will typically grow corn one year, soy the next. Corn, soy, corn, soy. Right, yep. that, that rotation. The idea is that they okay, can grow you. cover crops that... Hey, can be alfalfa fed. Hey, alfalfa, wheat, oats, rye, yeah, oats. Um, those are things. My favorite cover crop, turnips. I've heard good things about oh, yeah, turnips yeah. as cover crops. I, I saw don't lots know. of turnips <laughs> being grown in Normandy when I walked from Omaha Beach to Paris a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah, everywhere, turnips in November. Well, I don't know if chickens <laughs> are big fans of turnips, but certainly other, oh, can, other grains. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, Mighty Earth Campaign. This is, uh, are you a separate organization? Is it a coalition? Who's behind it? So Mighty Earth is a national nonprofit. They're based out of D.C., um, but we're doing organizing in nine cities um, across the country that are um, either negatively impacted by agricultural pollution, so a lot of places in um, the Corn Belt, um, or in places where Tyson has a large presence. So mm-hmm. we're organizing down in northwest Arkansas where they're based in, on the eastern shore as well. So and where does the funding come from? Um, Mighty Earth relies a lot on uh, large Grants, so okay. the funding for this campaign, I believe, is from the Packard Foundation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Are you working in coalition with any other groups? Or? Yeah. So we've um, we've been organizing on this campaign since the end of August, uh, and over the fall, we were working to build a coalition that is now uh, 270 groups strong of um, environmental organizations, labor groups, uh, small businesses who all say that you know. They want Tyson to step up and take action on this. Um, and over the next few months, we'll be working on campaigns to, or sorry, to build coalitions um, of public health groups and concerned parents to talk about and really highlight the um, health impacts of agricultural pollution. Mm-hmm. So a lot of um, agricultural runoff so in our drinking water. what kind water. of pushback have you had from Farm Bureau or from Tyson itself? Um, we haven't received much pushback from the Farm Bureau. Um, but that's coming. 
Hopefully not. <laughs> I think I, I was surprised myself really? to find that a lot of the agricultural community really does support these um, conservation practices. They recognize that it's really important that we are... Well, give me some examples. Yeah. So I was at the uh, Practical Farmers of Iowa conference a couple of weeks back, right. and there was a huge focus on the need to improve um, soil health and now, rebuild I would ex- that. I would, I would expect uh, Practical Farmers to support, but what about the Corn Growers Association? We haven't heard anything from them. Soybean Association. No. Okay. No. Yeah, that 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 uh, that might be an interesting conversation. But again, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think the whole movement, the whole direction of agriculture is it's, it's it's kind of a tension right now. There's there's a consolidation where things are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more centralized. I mean, we've we've got 50, 50 million hogs being raised every year in Iowa, and those those aren't controlled by. It used to be about what uh, eighty thousand pork producers in Iowa. There's about eight thousand now. You know, and so at the same time, though we see this huge direct, this huge momentum in the other direction, uh, local, you know, local uh, passion for local foods, more sustainability. So, um, yeah, you're on the cutting edge of one of two possible directions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the passion for local regenerative agriculture is really exciting. But we yeah. are seeing this trend towards consolidation and industrialization. And to the extent that these large corporations like Tyson Foods can take responsibility in leading the um, the industrial-scale food movement to be more sustainable, yeah. that's what we're hoping well, for. Well, let's see. Uh, we've been talking, folks, with Jesse Waxman with the Mighty Earth Campaign. Thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. There will be podcasts available later. If you're listening on our community-owned station, stay tuned. We've got some more conversation coming your way. Again, this is Ed Fallon. I want to thank our, our home station here, Lorraine at 1260. So if I were to ask you, what has, what, what has happened for the last 41 years in a row? Anyway, there's probably a lot of things you can guess. But the most disturbing response to that question is, we've had 41 consecutive years that have been warmer than average. The last time we had a year that was cooler than average was 1976. And uh, we're never going to see a year that was cooler than average. I, I, I can't. I don't see I don't see it happening, and neither uh, neither does um, the uh, United Kingdom's Met Office, or NOAA, or NASA. Everything is pointing to even even more rapid warming of the globe, and you know I I don't want to be a doomsayer or or um you know unnecessarily beat drums of concern, but. We ought to be really concerned, and and it's the 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 evidence is so strong. I, I mean, right now again, Paris, the Paris Accord set a goal of um, keeping global warming below two degrees Celsius, and actually, the nearly every nation said, no, 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 we got to keep it below one point five degrees Celsius, and that's um, and that's what uh, two point seven degrees Fahrenheit. One point five Celsius is two point seven Fahrenheit. Well, right now it's looking like we're going to hit. 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit in four years by 2022. That's the evidence, and we can't we, we can't do that. We 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 have to we have to stop pretending that we can approach this problem incrementally. And you know, look no further than the drought we've been experiencing in our own country. You know, 38.4 percent of the continental U.S. is now in a drought. The highest was again 40 percent back in May of 2014. You know, California, which, again, had just emerged from a drought, is now going back into one. 44% of California 
is now considered in a moderate drought condition. And with snowpack 30% below average in the mountains, and that's again, snowpack is where a big chunk of California gets its water. With that at 30% of what it's normally supposed to be, you know, we can expect a really, really major drought in California this year. It's not just California, though. They, the Colorado River Basin, they've got a 17-year run, uh, run now of mostly dry conditions, and their reservoirs are incredibly low. We're seeing uh, the Southern Plains as well, Texas. In Amarillo, Texas, no measurable precipitation has fallen in 111 days. And in Oklahoma, 79% of the winter wheat crop has been rated in poor to very poor condition. So, you know, I don't know when we're going to wake up, folks. Uh, but for, for the president to cancel our participation in what came out of Paris is unconscionable. Uh, it was unconscionable when he did it. And with the evidence now before us, not just evidence coming from laboratories and agencies that study this stuff, but from the field, we got to take action. we got to take it now. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum, folks, to talk about uh, talk with Ron Yarnell about um, the presidency in general. The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine. That same old tingle that I feel inside. And when that elevator starts its ride, then down and down. I All right, so uh, back to the conversation on the Fallon Forum here. You know, some folks, well, it's a bipartisan problem. Some folks feel that a particular president can fix all of America's problems. Uh, that didn't happen under Obama. And for those who like President Trump, it's not happening under President Trump either. And the problem is America's dysfunction is very deep, and no one person is going to be able to fix that. Uh, here to talk with me about that is Ron Yarnell. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot, Ted. You know, I've been thinking about this, how um, – uh, people are looking for some kind of political savior, and they're looking at certain personalities. So that's how Donald Trump got elected. And, and I guess uh, if you're a Trump supporter, you can judge for yourself uh, to what extent he's uh, some kind of savior. Uh, if you're not a Trump supporter, he, he certainly isn't. Uh, but I see the same thing happening uh, on the liberal left where you have uh, people – uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, for example, uh, they're, they're hoping he runs in 2020 when he's going to be 80 years old, when he takes office. And, uh, you know, I mean, I like Bernie. I liked him in, in 16. But you, you, you're telling me you're, you're, you're well, pinning but, your but, hopes but, on an 80-year-old man? Well, and, your, your point is that regardless of age, uh, no one person is going to fix uh, the no. problems in America. But we have this – we always have this inclination toward – uh, wanting and expecting a messiah. This goes way yeah, back. Yeah. But now, wh why? Why do you think? Um, but but in some cases, you've got. I mean, one person can really make a big difference, I, and I believe that across the board, even in 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 on a smaller scale. But yeah, you can have a president that makes a big difference in how well the country does or how badly it does. Hitler certainly made a big difference in in, in how Germany did back in the middle of the last century. But to <laughs> use that example, uh, Hitler had a tremendous movement behind him. 
All right, and and we're looking at we're looking for figures who really don't have much in terms of a, an active movement. I mean, there are a lot of Trump supporters, and within the Republican Party, there seem to be a lot of people now willing to enable Trump. As far as uh, uh, as, as I don't know how far they're going to go with it, but they're certainly willing to enable him, and that would include our own Iowa contingent, uh, Grassley, Ernst, and uh, around here in Des Moines, uh, Young, but. Generally, it's like one person, it's going to take a lot more than one person to affect any kind of positive change. I mean, you're going to have to have people of like mind throughout the whole political system. People are just very down on uh, political organization right now. People are disaffected from both major political parties, not for necessarily bad reasons. No, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people are disaffected. But you're really not going to make an overall uh, change in, in the system uh, just by electing one particularly uh, charismatic person. Charismatic to well, you. Other people <clears throat> might find that uh, that personality you know, repellent. Possibly the biggest change that we're going to see uh, in, the, in the Trump years is the the composition of the judicial system, not not just the uh, Supreme Court, but but uh, every level of a federal a federal court system of the federal court system, that that could be the most significant and long lasting impact, and that that could have a lot of effect on policy uh, for you know decades to come. Well, we'll we'll see what happens. I'm just I, I just wish people would think more organizationally. I, I wish they would think more in terms of, of we and us. A lot a lot was invested in Obama. People did kind of feel that if they elected uh, Barack Obama, that he would bring about uh, a new deal, a, a second coming of the great society. Uh, but Obama never really actually uh, addressed that. Obama, as I remember, uh, he always used the plural, we're the change that we're looking for. And I, and I like that about Obama. And meanwhile, now we have a, can, a president like Trump who basically <laughs> advertised himself like he was he yeah. was the only person who could get something done. Right. And, right, and, right. and that's, I think, a quantum leap. But some people want to hear that. And that's one reason the guy got elected. Well, and while, they why, want a strong man. And, they, want, they want a guy who and, they just that, turn all their problems is over Is that to. because people have become politically lazy, that they can't do much more <laughs> other than uh, post uh, uh, polemical memes on Facebook or other yeah, social media. It's partly that, but it's also it's also again historic. I mean, we, we as a species, um, you know, our our, um, our fascination with one strong leader, the the one. I mean, you know, the movie The Matrix, uh, the the one who had come to to save everyone. I mean, that's that's a theme throughout a lot of uh, literature, even, a lot of movies, even, a lot even of plays. Even if you have strong leads, see, this is an interesting thing about Donald Trump. He, he, well, for one thing, he's not a strong leader. He's actually a relatively weak leader, and the reason is because he has no real organization behind him. Uh, he has supporters. They'll get together for a rally. Uh, he certainly has people within the Republican Party willing to enable him for for their own reasons. Uh, and, and also, Donald Trump has no plan. I mean. The only thing he's accomplished right now is a pretty textbook a Republican uh, tax bill uh, that Wall Street wrote, but <laughs> but but there's no distinctive uh, uh, Trump Trumpian uh, 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 plan going into legislation. Uh, it's, it's just all personality. It's all bluster. It's all a reality so show. But, back to the root problem. You, you say there's a deep dysfunction within the uh, within America right now. Yes. And, and then, and basically, it's because one percent of the population owns and operates both major political parties. Well, and, and also uh, owns and controls most of the wealth. 
Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. I, and so they, they decide what issues are important, and the issues that they think are important are issues that are important to them. They may not be important <clears> to you and me, but they're important to them. And they pick the candidates yeah. to advance those uh, those so issues. So how, how do you break that? I mean, that's that's that's, that's the tough one. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, a short of a short of revolution, how do you how do you fix well, that at the ballot box? Uh, um, and and that and that's and that's that's the uh, the billion dollar question because uh, that's why it comes. Put a monetary value on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, basically, because how do you fix a system? Which has become totally uh, uh, subject to billions of dollars, and those billions of dollars basically coming from less than one percent of the population. Yeah, and, and you know, it's the, it, there. There are plenty of examples of candidates who run uh, and and spend, raise and spend less money than their opponent and win, but they're it's uh, what is it? Ninety percent of the time, <clears throat> the candidate with the most money yeah. wins. Yeah. You know, so it's it's an exception to the rule, and it's and once you have elections that are controlled by money and people who are influenced very strongly by the messages coming from those campaigns. They're, they're very crafty messages. I mean, I understand how propaganda works. Uh, we, we, you know, it's, easier to, it's easier to look at, say, Nazi Germany and say, oh, that was propaganda. But when you're in the midst of it and when you're, when you're hearing it, you know, it's amazing how many even very intelligent people are influenced by it. And I, so I, I would agree with that. I don't yeah. know. I, 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 it is a... The only, I, I think the only way to fix it is to somehow either you know reclaim one of the one or both political parties from for a more populist uh, you know for, for control by people who aren't part of that top one percent and aren't beholden to them and aren't just going to play their game or somehow replace those political parties or at least one of them so that you can create that kind of groundswell of opposition but it, it's going to take a um, you know it's going to take an electorate that wants to be more engaged. Uh, I think the electorate wants to be more engaged, but they've been successfully, as, as Chris Hedges would describe, uh, demobilized over the last generation. All avenues of activity have been basically closed off to ordinary people. So, bottom line, Ron, is there's no, um, there, 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 no matter who, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, don't be looking for a savior in one particular yeah. person as the uh, president. The, the, uh, I mean, my, my attitude is there's only been one savior, and he wasn't seeking political office. Yeah, and look what happened to him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> All right, got to wrap it up, folks. Uh, again, Ron Yarnell with us in the studio. Thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. Every week, uh, broadcast live at 11 o'clock Central Time. That old black magic that you weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine That same old tingle that I feel inside And when that elevator Starts its ride, then down and down I go, round and round I go, like a leaf that's caught in the tide. I should stay away, but what can I do? I hear your name, and I'm afraid. A flame with such a burning desire That only a kiss can put out the fire 
For you're the lover I have waited for. You're the mate that fate had me greet.